Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you again. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Also, go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information about our work, or you can leave a comment there, send along a comment or question via our contact form. Or you can email me, john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Well, it is good to be with you again. I have uh, been through a season of recording episodes on the book of Romans. It's, uh, as you know by now, an overview of the book. We aren't taking uh, two years to get through the entire epistle of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, but we we are highlighting the really weighty truths, and I hope you're finding this uh, a blessing as I am just going through this. I teach this material to really smart 11th and 12th graders at Circle Christian School. If you're the parent of a young person or, or a student yourself or even a grandparent, I think this material can really be meaningful. I hope you'll go back if this is your first time to listen to Relentless Truth. I hope you'll go back and listen to the previous episodes. There's one that is introductory that is quite helpful on kind of the context of the book. Paul wrote it in in Corinth, and he really just kind of unloaded all of theology, all sorts of deep theological truths in this book because we believe, and historians believe, and commentators believe, that it was because he was headed to a trip to Jerusalem and feared for his life, rightly feared for his life. And so this particular book, although his other writings are beautiful, this one is is a bit more comprehensive. The theme of the book is justification by faith or the the righteousness of God is a kind of another uh, way to say it. And we have reached a point in chapter three where we've already discussed chapters one and two, which really have to do with our our self-sufficiency, man's uh, self-efforts. And if we had a longer time period, I almost said an unlimited amount of time, but if we had a significant amount of time, we would kind of go back and talk about that throughout all of Scripture. But that's a theme in the book of Romans. The It's important for us to kind of set the stage when we think of Romans with who God is, who man is, and how God relates to man. And We think of God's transcendence as being apart from us, outside of us, and his imminence, his being with us. And man, from the beginning, from Adam and Eve, has had this desire to be self-reliant, self-sufficient, and almost, no, not almost, really in a way that elevates man above God. And, you know, we say things like, how could God do blank, or a loving God wouldn't do blank, and those are just indicative, I think, of this this perspective problem that we have on this fallen earth. I often say that the implications of the fall are kind of understated in our heads. We don't really, although scripture makes it really clear just how dead we are in our sins, in our trespasses and sins, 
we don't like to think that way. You can't be deader than dead. And the implications of that and the other implications of the fall in terms of death on this earth are significant. So we've arrived in chapter three and we've just walked through last week. We walked through uh, oh, the first 19 or 20 verses and Paul is using language of the courtroom. He's using legal language, language of the the justice system and because he was speaking to a sophisticated audience, I think. And I, I think really the legal standing issue is very important when we try to understand justification by faith. This doctrine of justification really has legal implications or it's best explained in those terms, I think. And that's what Paul does here. He's just brought and if you want to look at it, it's, it's kind of interesting if you're driving or doing something right now, like a lot of people are when they listen to this podcast or any podcast later, just take a look at the first 20 verses or so, really first 18 verses of chapter three. And it's a little confusing in the beginning because he's sort of objection scripting for those of you who are in sales or some, some type of business, uh, you, you know what that is. Paul is anticipating questions and answering those objection questions with truth in the first few verses and he you know it's easy to kind of get bogged down in that but if you follow that logically it's really interesting and we talked about that last time but then he brings these 14 counts of sin it's as if we are in the defendant's chair in the courtroom and he says for example in verse 9 none is righteous no not one and we talked last week about the fact that it is peculiar that he says no not one isn't it because it really isn't necessary if none is none, uh, none is righteous. And he says, no, not one. It's really, uh, you know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's really, I believe, an effort to say, no, not, not even you to the moralist, to the churchgoer, to the person with a leadership role in church, to the pastor, to the elders, to the deacons, to the Bible study leader, you know, to all of us. None is righteous in our flesh. No, not one. And then he goes on. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside together. I mean, he, he says sort of the same thing. We are all condemned in sin. But really, the way he does this is he, it's almost like we're in a courtroom sitting in the defendant's chair, as I said, and he's bringing 14 counts to indict us for our sin. And then he pivots. And this is, this is really interesting. I've testified as an expert witness one time, which is really daunting, and I don't really hope I ever have to be, I'd have to do that again. I also attended a, a sentencing with a friend in federal court, and just as kind of a character witness, I had written a letter on his behalf, and that was intimidating as well. But really, you've probably seen this on in movies and uh, television shows, so what really happens here is is the prosecutor talks and brings these 14 counts in a really compelling way in Paul's writing in verses, uh, I guess it's about nine or 10 through 18 of chapter three of Romans. And then the courtroom sort of looks at the defense and the defense rests. Now you've seen this happen before in court, but the defense says, this isn't one of those cases where the defense rests because we don't have anything to prove. You know, we don't, we don't have to prove anything because the prosecution hasn't presented a good case. The prosecution has presented 
an overwhelming case here. And yet, listen to what happens in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, listen, listen for it, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So Paul's introduced a concept that I would imagine for the typical Jewish person and Gentiles alike, because they're, they've observed all this, would have been mind-blowing. And that is just simply, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. The law does not justify. So we've reached the defense portion of the court proceedings, but there's nothing said in our defense. Every mouth is stopped. The verdict is guilty, and it's announced here. Paul announced it just now. No man will be justified in his sight. The article the before law in verse 19 is not there in the Greek, so Paul is saying that no human is justified by any law, and that's significant. There are two important words in this section. There's, there's righteous and justify, although translated into, you know, we said this last time in another section, but translated into different English words, the words are almost identical in Greek. They're very similar in meaning. To justify means to treat as righteous. So when God justifies a person, he pronounces us righteous as if we had never committed any sin. Now, God's righteousness, when we look at verse 21, is demonstrated and, and communicated to us through the cross. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And then in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. So he's talking about Jews and Gentiles again, and he's saying that the righteousness of God is demonstrated to us through the cross. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. They testify to it. They confirm it. They look forward to the cross. But this righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. So there again is this notion of Jews and Gentiles, the gospel going to both the Jews and the Gentiles. If we look at Hebrews 4.15, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The same word is used wherein Jesus is tempted, but is without sin. Just as sin and Jesus Christ have nothing in common so righteousness, back in Romans 3, and the law have nothing in common. Righteousness wasn't demonstrated in keeping the law. Righteousness was demonstrated in the cross. You hear that? Righteousness was not demonstrated in keeping the law. Righteousness was demonstrated in the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 21. I know I'm jumping around a little bit today, but I'm going to go back and 
sort of land in, in Romans 3 for the rest of our time together. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is imputed righteousness. That is just a beautiful, beautiful description of our justification in Christ. The Old Testament sacrifice system testified to faith in Christ that is not our own. It testified to faith in a righteousness that is not our own in Christ. That is, the Old Testament sacrifice system wasn't complete. It pointed us to the cross. It points us today to the cross. Thus, the law bears witness to a righteousness that God provides, but the law itself cannot provide this righteousness. Verse 22 just said, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Christ. There are other scriptures we can look at. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.15, 2 Corinthians 5.21, 1 Peter 2.21-24, and others. Faith in Christ, think about it, is the only conditional element of the gospel. There's repentance that is required, but it's turning, repenting, turning from self-reliant sin to trusting in or having faith in Christ. In verse 22, Paul says, there's no distinction. He says that again. We talked about that just a moment ago. There's no difference in the gospel. There's no difference between among people. I believe he's talking about Jews and Gentiles there. The glory of God now resides in the person of Jesus Christ. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. The standard of God's holiness today is not just the Old Testament law. It's the person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament law pointed us. It was a type of, it was a picture of, but I probably shouldn't have used that word type but it pointed us to, it was a picture of, a demonstration of the holiness of God. But the person of Jesus Christ is the standard of God's holiness today for us. Yeah, this notion of there being no distinction is interesting. No distinction among persons. I often think about how we can't do that. Do you think about that? We make distinctions all the time, don't we? I mean, even if we say, I'm going to try hard not to do that. One of the first things we say socially, which I find, I've always found this really peculiar, is we meet someone, whether we're introduced or we're introducing ourselves, and especially if it's two guys. I, I don't know whether ladies do this quite as readily, but, but two guys, and within 30 seconds, one of them has to ask the other, so what do you do? Now, they don't mean, what are your hobbies? What are your interests? Are you a Christian? 
What's your family life like? They mean, what do you do for a living? It's, you know, I've asked students about this over the years. You know, why do we do that? Have you noticed that adults do that? And you students don't do that, obviously, because you don't have jobs yet for the most part. And even if you do, you don't lead with what do you do? Why do you think adults do that? And you know what they say? Oh, it's just to fill the space. I, I, I think it's more than that. I think it's making a distinction, to use Paul's language, for there's no distinction, he says in verse 22. And I know he's talking about something else. There's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek or, or among people. The gospel applies to everyone is really what justification by faith applies to everyone. That's what he's saying. Isn't that just the coolest thing, though, by the way? That justification by faith is the great equalizer, whether you're Donald Trump and live in luxury or you're Elon Musk or you're the person who picks up the trash at the end of the street or you're an accountant or you're a banker or you're a lawyer or you're a laborer or you own a construction, whatever it is, there is no distinction. I don't think I'm stretching the scripture to say that. I believe that is clear. That is, I know that is clearly demonstrated throughout the rest of scripture Justification by faith is a great equalizer. We are all equally dead in sin and in need of a Savior. I know that's obvious, but just think about that for a minute. Because I think what we're doing when we say, so what do you do when we meet each other? We're sizing each other up. We have in our heads, some people live this way. I mean, and I, God forbid, but I I think I thought this way for a period of years. You kind of size people up and you have this pecking order. You have this hierarchy in mind. Oh, you do this. I even ask the students to rate all the professions in their minds. And you know, interestingly, I thought they'd start with physician and they don't necessarily. It's a, their, their answers are diverse. But if somebody says I'm a rocket scientist, I, I had the pleasure of sitting next to astronaut Bruce Melnick at a, at a meeting in Titusville, Florida years ago. And I sat on the wrong side of him because they did introductions of, it was the Economic Development Commission and several of us had just been elected to that board. And I sat on the wrong side of him because as they did the introductions, they got to him first and he stands up and says, I've been on X number of space shuttle missions. I'm astronaut Bruce Melnick. And I thought, oh my goodness, I've got to introduce, I'm I'm a banker and a dork. And, but that's how we do it. We kind of have with, with occupations, you know, what do you do? We're really sizing people up. So we do make distinctions. That's probably way too much on that topic. It's really interesting, though. Let's look at verse 24. And, and remember, we're, we're kind of in a courtroom. Paul is still using legal language here. And he says, well, let me, let me just read 23 again. For all have sinned. I didn't read that one yet. Uh, for there's no distinction, he says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all exactly in the same place, he's saying. And then verse 24, and are justified, that is made righteous, remember, and are justified by his grace, his free gift, his unmerited gift, as a gift, Paul says. So here's what it actually says. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. Now, lots of big words there, but this this justification is provided through redemption that is a purchase that is in Christ Jesus. This justification is by his grace. So to understand verses 25 and 26, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness 
because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So think about this. The mercy seat was the lid on the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. The Ark was the meeting place between God and man. It contained the Mosaic Law, as you know, probably. The mercy seat covered the law of God. The word used to translate mercy seat into Greek meant the place of propitiation. So when we think about that word, and I I know much has been written about this for those of you who are scholars, who are theologians who've studied the language here and what, what is actually being communicated, I understand all that. But to propitiate, just to make it simple, means to appease an offended party. So this propitiation is satisfaction or appeasement of God. We've taken that word to appease to mean something different, like people-pleasing, appeasing personality. But no, this is actual legal appeasement, to appease an offended party. The mercy seat was the place where the blood of the sacrifices was applied to appease the wrath of God against the sins of Israel. This is the word Paul uses here for propitiation. Forceful expiation is another way to say it. But Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. He is the person by whom our penalty was paid and the offended party appeased. Jesus Christ is where God meets humans. Now, why did Jesus become our propitiation in verse 26? The answer is it's the demonstration of God's righteousness. He paid the penalty for our sin and for all sins prior to Calvary that were not permanently dealt with. That's what Paul is saying here. God is the purifier of anyone who puts their faith in the blood of Jesus Christ in his finished work. What a beautiful truth. Let me say it again. God is the purifier of anyone who puts their faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, you know, is such a good writer and he's a strategic thinker. We talked about that and he's using legal language here. And I almost just want to read all of that again. If we have time at the end, I'll do that. But I want to look at verses 27 to 31 because this is interesting. Paul circles back. He does this very well, logically. And he's anticipating objections again. He's anticipating issues here. And, you know, you better believe he's going to have issues here because he just said justification is by faith. And he used the word propitiation, you know, referencing the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And he's pretty sure, I think, that minds are blown. And my mind is blown when I read this, when I think about justification by faith. It's one of those concepts that is so simple that it's difficult. And we love, all of us love to add to this gospel the simplicity, the beauty, the pure beauty of the gospel, that Jesus Christ was, is the righteousness of God demonstrated to us in the flesh. He conquered sin and death for us. So in verse 27, Paul says, I'm going to read 27 through 31 here. Then what becomes of our boasting? Well, love the rhetorical questions that Paul answers. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? 
no, but by the law of faith. Now, there's so much to say there that we don't have really time in this format to say, but think about it for a second. Who did he just talk about in chapter two in the earlier part of his letter here? Relatively brief early part of his letter. He talked about the moralists, didn't he? Who were the moralists? Well, there were lots of moralists, weren't there? Probably the Gentiles who worshiped these idols in Rome. They would have been impacted by this kind of language, but especially the Jewish people, especially the Pharisees. What becomes of our boasting, Mr. Moralist? The immoral person, the nice thing, you know, again, to contrast the two, and there's nothing nice about the sin, immoral sin, immorality, sexual immorality in particular. But, but the nice thing about that mental state as they approach this gospel is, is they know they're guilty. The moralist thinks he's, he or she is righteous, is doing right. So then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded, he says. By what kind of law? <laughs> so clever. By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. But wait a minute, I want to do something. You see, isn't it, isn't it silly if we, if we recognize that we're guilty of these 14 counts? And I'm going to tell you what I picture when Paul walks through all this, and I'm going to be clear that I'm speculating, and this is in my head. This is not what Paul is saying exactly, but I think it's a helpful mental picture. Paul addresses our desire here for self-sufficiency in the context of justification by faith. We want to say, no, that's too easy. I want to help out. There's no boasting because Jesus is our propitiation. The covering of our sins. Conquering sin and death. We want to step into a role that only he can play. But Paul says, no, we are justified. You are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. There's one God for Jews and Gentiles. The law of faith is the universal law of God's salvation. And if you struggle with that, and that's okay, it's normal, it's natural to struggle with this. But we're all equal. There's no distinction. We're all equally dead in our sins. And there's the law of faith in Jesus Christ is the universal law of God's salvation. He says, do we nullify the law through faith? No. Faith in Christ is our response to the law. The teaching that justification is by faith alone doesn't destroy the law. It upholds it. Since Jesus kept the law perfectly, faith in the finished work of Christ brings the ultimate respect to the law. So we're not antinomian. We're not anti-rules. We're not to believe in justification by faith is just beautiful on every front. It's not antinomianism. It doesn't say we can go do what we want to do. We won't react that way if this grace, if this justification by faith grips us, we will be overwhelmed by God's love. So let's look at it again, just real quickly. I'm going to start in verse 21. Actually, I'll start in 19. And I'm going to read through this, and then I'm going to tell you what my mind pictures in this courtroom scene. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So gavel goes down, guilty. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. 
no human being will be justified in his sight. In other words, you and I are guilty, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is not justifying. The sacrifice system did not justify to appease the wrath of God for a period, for a season, but it doesn't provide justification. If you've been taught that, you know, take a look at this section of scripture and others. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier, the righteous one, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Period. So here's what I see when I read this. And I I don't think this is far-fetched. I do want to be careful that you know these are my words. This is, I'm picturing this courtroom scene, and I've said several times, I picture myself and you and all of us in the defendant chair. And clearly... The prosecutor, Satan, has read the 14 counts. You're guilty, 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 guilty. And, and there's so much to say about Satan being the accuser and all, all of that. But just call it a prosecutor. And he pronounces us guilty on these 14 counts. You're charged with these 14 counts. And then God himself, the judge, brings down the gavel and announces us in verses 19 and 20. Guilty. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. There's none righteous. He's already said, no, not one. Verse 23, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then as he begins to describe this propitiation, here's what I picture. This is a little weird probably, but God in the person of Jesus Christ gets up out of the judge's seat. And if you've ever been in a courtroom, especially federal court, oh my goodness, they're elevated and they're, everything is mahogany and it's beautiful. And, and the judge comes in in a robe and the courtroom is very respectful. And I can just picture Jesus gets up and, and this is emotional to even think about. And through the cross, through the gospel, after we've been pronounced guilty, moves us out of the way and sits in that defendant's chair for us and is sentenced to death. And then he clothes us in his righteousness. And that's not just a robe. It's a head to toe, inside and out imputation of righteousness. He takes on our sin and the great exchange is that he then gives us the free gift of righteousness. And you say, wow, what do we have to do? Do we have to work on a, on a work crew and, and have to be in prison for years? And how did we earn that? How did, why did he do that? He did it because he loves us. His overwhelming love for us. He extended his grace to us and it is grace. We didn't work for it. We didn't do anything for it. 
We just received this free gift. I mean, what a beautiful, beautiful picture. And not only that, Paul says that people before him, the Old Testament characters, were justified by the cross as well. They were justified by faith. They were made righteous by faith as well. And we'll talk more about that in in chapter 4. But I hope this picture is helpful. I certainly don't want to be guilty of heresy. I'm just telling you what I picture in Paul's legal language that he's using here when he says propitiation and he describes justification by faith, this being made right with God, this appeasement, our redemption. I picture Christ's finished work and the sufficiency of his finished work in this courtroom. Nothing like this has ever happened as far as I know in in the United States or in modern history where a judge does that. God's grace is so overwhelming, is so significant, is so special, is so beyond us that we have a hard time comprehending it. And I believe that's why we gravitate toward moralism. We gravitate toward checklist living. And I know the danger of antinomianism, but I really don't worry so much about that with you, with all of us. Because I think when that gospel that we just read about grips us, it overwhelms us and we don't think, okay, I can just now go do whatever I want. We think, wow, that overwhelming love. If we really get that courtroom scene that just played out, we fall on our face and know that we don't deserve God's love for us. We don't deserve this salvation, this justification by faith. Adding to it is dangerous. It's unhealthy. And and Paul's going to go on and talk about that. Paul's going to, he actually, you know, it's kind of weird, but at the end of the trial here, if I can say it that way, when we get to chapter four, he's going to bring in two witnesses just to drive home the point. And he makes a profound point that Abraham, and secondarily, he does reference David, but primarily Abraham was justified by faith. Now, I had a student this year who said, you know, my pastor doesn't teach that that way. And I said, well, just, I don't want to get between you and your pastor, but go home and read it. He came back the next week and he said he talked to his parents about it and had read it. And he said, you know, you're right. That's, that's what it says, doesn't it? It says Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised. So justification by faith has been a theme throughout, the, the theme throughout of God's redemption throughout all of scripture. The cross was not an afterthought. It was not plan B. It was plan A and it is beautiful. So I hope this has been helpful. That is Romans 3. I think we have perspective now on on the role of the law. The law is our school teacher. The law shows us the character of God. It it demonstrates his, his holiness, his being set apart, his moral purity. It's helpful to us. We don't discount the law. We don't shred the Old Testament. It has a purpose for us, but it's not perfect and it doesn't save us. Jesus Christ alone saves us. His finished work saves us. I hope that's helpful. If I've created questions in your mind, I hope you will go to Scripture for the answer. If you have lingering questions that you'd like to discuss, go to johnwarrenmedia.com and go to our contact page and send along those questions. Or you can email me directly, john at johnwarrenmedia.com. 
I hope you'll share these episodes. I think they're important. I hope they stimulate thought. And I, what I, my real hope is that they drive you to read scripture. Look at this for yourself. Sit down with scripture. Go to blueletterbible.org if you don't have a copy of the Bible. And you can pull this up in the English Standard Version. That's what I was reading from. And you can see these exact words. You can also look at a number of other versions, the American Standard, New King James, and others, NIV even. And you can see these words and the way they're written. You can even, on that website and others, you can even do a Greek word search to see what the words really mean and where the words are used other places to really get a feel for what Paul is saying here. I don't want to be guilty of heresy, and I want you to see this for yourself in Scripture. So please share this. This is the most important thing that we could talk about. It might not be the most interesting from a pop culture standpoint. I think it is, actually. But it is the most valuable thing that we could spend our time talking about. Go to my website, pull up this episode. I don't know how you got here necessarily, but if you came through iTunes or wherever, Apple Music or Spotify or whatever, go to the website and just send that link to friends and let them hear it, this episode. I want to stir people up with truth. And it's sometimes hardest for people in the church to hear. But justification by faith is the theme of this book, and it it is important. So thank you for your listening and your support. It is just a blessing to get to do this in this format. And I look forward to being with you again next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.